Well, let's begin tonight with a word of prayer. Oh, loving Father, we are so grateful and thankful for the rain that has been falling and nourishing the ground. And Lord, in like manner, we come here tonight because we want to have our souls nourished. We need to understand the truth from Your Word. And Lord, we're praying that the Holy Spirit is going to guide us into all truth like You promise us. And so, Lord, prepare our hearts and minds now. Help us to hear from heaven tonight what You would have us do. And we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2008, Ian Usher sold his life on eBay. Anybody heard about this guy? He lived in Perth, Australia, and he had a very good job, had exciting hobbies. Here he is just coming back from skydiving. And one day, after five years of marriage, his wife came home and said to him, Ian, I don't love you anymore, and I'm leaving you. And Ian really struggled with that for about a year, and then he started uh, noticing that everything in his life was just reminding him of his wife. They had been building a beautiful home when she left him, and he had a lot of things there that just kept reminding him of that life. And so he was talking to a friend one day, and that friend just in jest said, I'm thinking about selling my life. And Ian just kept thinking about that and thinking about that, and he finally decided to do it. And so he sold his car, his house, his motorcycle, his jet ski, his job, his friends, his whole life. He sold it all on eBay. And it's interesting what he said in his own words. He said, so now that I have been spurred into action by events in my life, which has brought me to this point, I'm pretty excited about the whole thing. I'm looking forward to moving on and shedding the past. I'm excited about the future and really have no idea where events might lead me. I love the adventurous nature of the project and I'm excited about a new start. And when Ian was asked why he was leaving it all, why he was giving it all up, he said there are just too many reminders here. Everything here is connected to that old life and it's time to just Let it go. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. And let's see something that Jesus said that I think is very interesting. That's going to be page 1131 in your seminar Bible. Matthew chapter 16, the first book of the New Testament. And notice what it says in verse 24 and 25. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I find that verse very interesting, especially when you look at the fact that many Christians today look at that verse where Jesus says, take up your cross And they look at that and they think that that means that there's some burden in life that they just have to carry, right? You ever heard somebody say, oh, I guess that's just my cross to bear? But I think that we need to realize something. If you go back to the days of Jesus, when you saw somebody carrying a cross in His day, where were they going? They were going to their death. That's right. And so what Jesus is essentially saying here is that we need to do in a spiritual sense what Ian Usher did in a literal sense. We need to say goodbye to that old life and we need to enter into an entirely different experience. I'd like you to turn with me to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and the last chapter, chapter 22, And let's notice what John says here in verses 1 and 2. Revelation 22, verse 1 and 2. And he is in vision here, and he says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street, and on others, either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. 
And so here we see John seeing in vision the, the kingdom of God. And here is this river that is coming out from the throne of God. And the tree of life is, is on both sides of the river. It's like the trunk is under the river and there's a big branch or big tree coming up on either side. But here we have this river of life. And remember what I told you on the first night. Out of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, 286 of those are at least partially quoted from the Old Testament. And I find it very interesting that John sees something in vision very similar to something that Ezekiel saw. So turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 47 and let's take a look at that. It's going to be page 1015 in that seminar Bible. Ezekiel 47. And I'd like you to notice what it says in verses 1 through 6. Ezekiel 47, 1 through 6. Ezekiel is in vision, and he has this man that's taking him around. And he says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple towards the east. For the front of the temple faced east, the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east, and there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters, and the water came to, to my knees." Again he measured 1,000 and brought me through the water and came to my waist. Again he measured 1,000 and it was a river that I could not cross for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he brought me and returned me to this bank of the river. And so here we see essentially the same picture that John saw, this river that's coming from the throne of God and the temple of God and it goes out through the side under the wall and then it comes out of the temple and then notice what it says in verses 7 through 9 and when i returned there along the bank of the river there were many trees on one side and the other and then he said to me this water flows toward the eastern region goes down into the valley and enters the sea and when it reaches the sea its waters are healed and it shall be that every living thing that moves where the river goes will live there will be a great multitude of fish because the water go there and they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. So this is some very powerful imagery that we see here. Uh, and I think that we're going to see that in a very real, very literal way in the kingdom of God. There is going to be this river of life that goes down through there. But notice that when it goes out, that everything it touches just comes alive, doesn't it? Isn't that amazing that this river just brings life everywhere it goes? And you can get a, an idea of this if you go back to the Old Testament and you look at the nation of Israel and there is a sea there that's called the Dead Sea, right? That sea doesn't have any water coming in or going out of it and there's nothing that can live in that sea. But then you see this river that comes down and when it gets down in there and it just heals that water. Right? And now you have plenty of fish there. And so I think this is talking about a real literal river that is going to be in the kingdom of God. But I also think that it's giving us a picture of something that the Bible uses in other places to talk about a very important subject. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, it says, "...in that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David." for sin and for uncleanness. Notice that this is not a fountain for washing away dirt or for taking a bath, but it is for sin and for uncleanness. In other words, this is a fountain for washing away spiritual dirt. Right? Now, do you remember when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well by Samaria in John chapter 4? And you'll remember that he asked her for a drink of water. And you'll remember what she said to him. She said, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan, so why are you talking to me? Because Jews and Samaritans don't associate, right? 
And then do you remember what Jesus said to her? He said, if you knew the gift of God and you knew who it was that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, right? Now, of course, he wasn't talking about the water in the well, was he? He was talking about a different kind of water. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so here we see this living water which washes And it is uh, symbolically talking about the operation of the Holy Spirit in creating a new person. Amen? Everyone that it touches spiritually is brought to life. And so tonight we're going to talk about this water that is associated with the new life for the Christian. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3. It's going to be page 1222 in your seminar Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, the fourth book of the New Testament. John chapter 3. And notice what it says in verses 1 and 2. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So let's just talk about Nicodemus for a minute. What do we know about him? Here we see that he was a Pharisee and that he was a ruler of the Jews, right? And we can learn one more thing about him. If you go down to verse 10, notice what that says. It says, And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? Isn't that interesting? Uh, that Nicodemus was a teacher of Israel. And there it says you are the teacher, right? And it may very well be that Nicodemus was the greatest teacher that they had at that time, but he certainly was a teacher at, at least, right? And so here we have him coming to Jesus. And I, I find it very interesting that Nicodemus is trying to talk to Jesus like he's a colleague, Right? He's trying to talk to him like they're on the same level or, or that they're equal. And, and here, I think it, you know Jesus could have very easily said to him, look, Nicodemus, if you think that I'm a teacher sent from God, then why didn't you come to me during the day? Right? Jesus could have easily said that to him, but notice he didn't. He just gets right to the heart of the matter, doesn't he? And he says, I'd like you to notice what he says in verse 3. He answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if, if Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel, he was probably a pretty intelligent guy, wasn't he? So do you think that uh, Jesus, when Jesus said to him, you must be born again, notice what Nicodemus says in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Do you really think if Nicodemus was this teacher of Israel that he really felt like Jesus was telling him he had to climb back into his mother's womb? I I don't think so, right? I think what the problem here is that Nicodemus had a pride issue because he was a teacher, Possibly the teacher of Israel. He was a ruler. He was someone who was of the religious establishment, the religious elite. And here he comes to Jesus, and Jesus essentially says to him, Look, if you want to be saved, you've got to forget everything you've learned, and you've got to do a 180 degree turn. Right? And so he may have been very incensed by that. And so. He's talking to Jesus. Notice what Jesus says then in verse 5. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, you'll remember that at the same time, there was a man in Israel by the name of John the Baptist who was out in the wilderness uh, teaching and baptizing 
that there needed to be repentance and baptism, correct? And the interesting part about that is the Pharisees knew about John, right? They knew what John was doing. And, and they were very accustomed to ceremonial cleansings. So it wasn't an issue that John was baptizing, but the issue was that they thought they didn't need it, right? Uh, that's okay for everybody else to go out there, but they refused to go out to John and be baptized by him. They thought that they were better than that. They thought that they didn't need that, that they were already uh, saved, if you will. They were already in the kingdom of God. And so uh, they, just, they just refused to do what John was asking them to do. And now Jesus is telling them, but you must be born of the water and the Spirit, right? Jesus is making a direct reference here to water baptism and that you have to be born of the water and the Spirit. And so he's talking about baptism and he's talking about being born of the Spirit of God, having that change or that conversion that takes place when we surrender our hearts to God. And you'll remember that Jesus Himself was baptized. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, John said to Him, I should be baptized by you. And what did Jesus say? He said, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Right? Because Jesus is our example. And Jesus, yeah, He didn't have any sins to confess. He didn't have anything to repent of. But He said to John, it is proper that we do this. And you'll remember that it was when, when Jesus was baptized that He was filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And so He has gone before us and He is our example. He is the one that we are to look to to know what we ought to do as His followers. And not only was Jesus Himself baptized, but you realize that baptism was a part of Jesus' ministry. Right? John chapter 4, verse 1, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Did you know that Jesus was baptizing there? And that there were more that He baptized than John did. But notice what verse 2 says. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but His disciples. You ever wonder why Jesus didn't do any baptizing Himself? Certainly, He was for it. Right? He was baptized himself. He was having his disciples baptized. So why didn't he do it? Well, I think there's a very simple reason. Imagine what would have happened if Jesus would have been doing the baptizing himself. There would have been people that would have said, Oh yeah, you were baptized by John, but I was baptized by Jesus. My baptism is much more better than yours, right? And Jesus was just trying to avoid that whole thing of people getting hung up on who it was that baptized them. It's not important so much as to who baptizes you, but the fact that you are baptized into Christ. Amen? And so here we see this symbolic picture that Jesus is giving us here about baptism. Baptism is mentioned more than 80 times in the New Testament. And yet there are many Christians today that feel that baptism isn't important. So I want to ask you, how important is baptism? Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. If you're still in John, just go back three books. Matthew 28, that's going to be page 1150 of that seminar Bible. And I'd like you to notice what Jesus said to His disciples and what He's saying to us right before He went back to heaven. Starting in verse 18. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. It says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There are three very important things that we see there in that passage. First of all, Jesus says, go and make disciples, right? In other words, go and teach. 
there has to be teaching to make a disciple, doesn't he? And then he says, go and baptize them. And then he says, teach them some more. And there's a reason for all of those things. First of all, if you are going to make a commitment to Christ and be baptized, then the first thing you need to know is what you're committing to, don't you? And so there has to be some learning that takes place before baptism. It's very unfortunate, but there are many churches today that they just say, oh, do you want to be baptized? And you say, yeah. And they say, okay, let's do it. But there really needs to be some preparation. There needs to be some understanding of what you're committing to. But then once you're baptized, you know, some, the other problem that the churches have is that then they just, okay, we're done now, right? And you just kind of, oh, all right. And then there's nothing else. But Jesus says there's more learning that needs to go on. Once you're baptized doesn't mean that you know everything that you need to know about the will of God in your life, right? And so you need to continue on and to do some more learning. I'm going to give you an example of this. I heard a story about a pastor evangelist by the name of Doug Batchelor, who was a rebellious young man and uh, left his parents' home. And he ended up going out into the desert area between California and Arizona, right there on the border, and living in a cave. And when he went into this cave, he found a Bible. And he began to read it. And pretty soon he gave his heart to the Lord. And then at some point after that, some guy comes by his cave and they're talking and they start talking about baptism and the, and the man says, well, you need to be baptized because at that point he had never been baptized before. And so there was some water there and so they said, well, let's go. And he went down into the water and he baptized him and then the guy left and Doug Batchelor thought, well, I need to celebrate. And so he left his cave and he went down to the nearest town And he went into a bar and he got drunk and got in a fight. All right. And there are some people that might say, well, that's okay. You know, people celebrate a little bit differently, right? But I'm going to suggest to you that that man didn't really do a very good job of telling him what he was committing to, right? And what it actually means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We need to understand what that means before we commit to it. And if we don't, that just doesn't make any sense, right? What are we committing to if we don't know, right? And so I believe that teaching according to the Bible is a very necessary step in baptism preparation. Now, there are some stories in the Bible that you see that there are some people like the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that he was sitting in his chariot and he's reading the book of Isaiah And Philip comes along and just helps him with one little thing, and then they go right down immediately into the water of baptism, right? Well, I'll just say to you that from my own experience as a pastor, there are times when there are people that have a pretty good understanding, and you can go through those steps towards baptism rather quickly, and there are others that may take a little bit longer. And so you have to weigh each of those out with each individual. But I'll also tell you this. Today, we live in a society that is nearly biblically illiterate. You've got to remember that during that 1260 years of the papal reign, that the truth was cast to the ground. And so much of the teachings in the church today is error. And so if we are going to want to be baptized, we really need to understand that error. And you've been coming through these kinds of meetings and you've been learning a lot of it, haven't you? And so we really need to know what we are committing to before we are doing that. And there may be a little bit of additional training that needs to go on to prepare someone for baptism. But then there are people that say, well, what about the thief on the cross, right? John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of the water and the Spirit. And so people say, well, how could that thief be in the kingdom? Jesus clearly told him, you're going to be with me, right? But we got to realize that there are extenuating circumstances in this situation. That guy could not come down off the cross and go get baptized. And there are extenuating circumstances. There are times when people give their life to the Lord and then immediately after that, life is over, right? They lose their life. And so, you know, they didn't have that opportunity. But there are exceptions 
to the main rule. But the problem that we have is we always want to be the exception, don't we? People say, well, if the thief on the cross didn't have to be baptized, then why do I? But we've got to realize that 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 is an exception that God makes. But if we have the opportunity to be baptized and we truly love the Lord and He calls for us to be baptized, then why wouldn't we want to be? Right? Notice what Mark chapter 16, verse 16 says. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, right? I believe that these are connected for a very good reason. When you become a believer, if you truly love Him, if you truly believe in Him, you are going to want to follow exactly what God has called for us to do, right? And it only makes sense. And Christ put this emphasis on baptism. Now the question then is, what exactly does it mean to be baptized? I'd like you to look with me in Romans chapter 6. It's going to be page 1298 of that seminar Bible. And I'd like you to notice what it says in verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. And so here we see that Paul is saying to us that when we are baptized, we are dying to that old life. Right, That old way of thinking, the old way of doing things is gone and now we are raised into the newness of life. And so this is making a commitment to a new way of life. Right, The old man is buried, the old way of doing things, and now you're coming up and you are committing to a new life. Notice what it says in verse 5 and 6. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now, this is talking about that old man, right? That old way of thinking, that old way of doing things. The old uh, man that was a carnal man who was... A selfish man and all of our old attitudes and all of those things are all gone and now we have been crucified we have died to that old man and now we are brought up into the newness of life and then in verse 7 it says for he who has died has been freed from what freed from sin that's the beauty of baptism Baptism is that old man dying and being raised into a new way of life that is free from sin. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live in, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. In other words, I no longer am uh, ruling and reigning in my own life. But I'm allowing Jesus Christ to guide my heart and guide my mind into new ways of thinking, into new ways of doing things. And that's what baptism represents. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. That's right. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It means a new start. And that's why creation is so important, or it should be important to the Christian. You know, the problem with many Christians today is that that they believe that God just uh, kind of started everything and then let it all evolve, right? And that's really challenging to try and help people to see that that really takes away our hope and our joy of Christ. Because, I mean, if you think about it, if it took thousands of years to evolve, then how does that work when you are recreated in Christ? We don't want to have to wait thousands of years for that old man to evolve, right? 
But when you are recreated in the image of Christ, it's instantaneous. You surrender your heart to the Lord. You ask Him to come in to be your Lord and Savior. And now He gives you a new heart. Right? And we don't have to wait for that old man to die. He is gone. We put him to death. And now we live in the newness of Christ. And I'm so glad that we don't have to wait a long period of time. But the Bible says that we are born again by the Word of God. The Word of God is creative. It's got creative power. And the Word of God hits. A new creation is made. The old is gone. The new has come. Praise God for that. Baptism can give us a new sense of direction, a new freedom, a new spiritual power, and a new start. And some people, well, there are some people that have been born of the Spirit, but they've never been baptized. And I think that for them, it's just a matter of not understanding that God has called us to both. Right? That we are to be born of the Spirit and the water. And so they just need to understand that they need to be baptized. And then there are others who are born of the water. And what's that like? Well, they go down into the water, a dry rubble, and they come out a wet one. Right? Because they don't have the Spirit of God in their life, because they don't have the power of God, they don't have that transformation that takes place, and they're only born of the water, but not of the Spirit. Baptism represents a death to that stubbornness, that old way of life, and our enmity against God and the will of God for our lives. And so... You know, we need to be baptized by both the water and the Spirit. Baptism represents that that old man does what? Dies, and that old man has to die. The Bible says that the carnal heart is wicked, and it cannot be made subject to God. God has to give us a new heart. He has to recreate us, and we have to say goodbye to that old stubborn way of thinking and doing things. And that's why uh, baptism is a symbol of commitment. Amen? Romans chapter 6, verse 11 says, Likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what does it mean, that word reckon there? It means to think of in this way or to consider it that way, right? We are to reckon ourselves dead to sin now there may be days when you just don't feel like you're dead to sin right but paul doesn't say that we're always going to feel like we're dead to sin but in spite of our feelings we can consider ourselves dead to sin it's sort of like a bible study Uh, and i'm just going to be honest with you for a minute might shock you but even as a pastor there are some times that I just don't feel like going to a Bible study, right? But when I feel like that, that's when I know I really need it, right? And then I go anyway because I choose, I reckon myself dead to sin, and I go anyway in spite of my feelings, and I always get a double blessing out of it. It always is exactly what I needed at the time. Here's my point, friends. Christianity is not a magic carpet ride, right? That old man is still there. We reckon him dead, but every once in a while that old man still pops up, doesn't he? And we have to you know, realize that when we give our heart to Christ that that old man isn't gone. He's still there. And we're not always going to just have holy aspirations. I wish it were that way, but it's not because that old man is there. We have to choose to follow Jesus Christ anyway and to give our affections to Him. And then when we do, then the feelings are going to follow, aren't they? But only as we give ourselves to Him first. The feelings aren't always going to be there. But we can still choose to follow Him, even when we don't feel like it. I heard a story about a boy who Uh, There was a pond not too far from their home, and and every day he was going down to that pond and swimming. And his mother told him, I don't want you going down to that pond anymore because it's not safe for you to be down there by yourself. Something could happen. 
And so she gave him a good chewing out. And the next day, uh, her son comes home wet. And she said to him, I thought I told you not to go swimming. And he said, well, I wouldn't have, but the temptation was too great. And then she said, well, that's interesting. How come I saw you putting your swimsuit in your school bag this morning? And he said, because I knew I was going to be tempted. (laughs) Friends, here's the point. The Bible says, make no provision for the flesh. Amen? We need to choose to do what is right, even though we might not feel like it. Right? You don't walk into a bar if you're a recovering alcoholic. You don't go buy the magazine rack in the store if you have a problem with pornography. Right? We have to reckon ourselves dead to sin And it's about making right choices. That old man is still there, but you now have the power of God in your life to make right choices. And that's the difference of someone who's walking in the Spirit compared to someone who's walking in the flesh. Sort of like Ian Usher, right? His car, his house, his friends, his job, they were all reminders of him of his old life. Everything had to change. He had to get rid of it all and he needed to have a new start. Remember what we read earlier, what Jesus said? Anyone who wants to save his life has to lose it. Right? We have to exchange our dreams of heaven on earth for the dreams of heaven. Right? We have to let go of that dream of that perfect job, that 2.3 kids, that house with the white picket fence, and we exchange those dreams for the dreams of heaven. And you can go to Hebrews chapter 11 and you can see about those men and women of faith who confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims here on earth because they were looking for a heavenly home, right? They didn't make earth their heaven. They sought something better. They chose a better life. Notice what it says in Luke 14, verse 33. Jesus says, Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, I don't think that that means that you have to put the deed to your house or the keys to your car in the offering plate. But I think that it means that Anything that gets in between us and God that's going to prevent us from giving all of our heart to God, then we want to get rid of those things from our life. Remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? Jesus said, sell everything you have and give to the poor. And then come follow me, right? Because he knew that for that man, that was the thing that was preventing him from following Jesus completely and totally. And so anything that's in your life, that is preventing you from surrendering it all and giving it all to God, those are the things that you want to get rid of in your life and you want to have that new beginning. And when Ian Usher left, he said he left with only the clothes on his back. How much more should we be willing to say goodbye to our old life when we have eternity that we're looking to? Amen? Baptism doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it does mean that you are committed, right? And the problem that people have today is we want relationships without the commitment. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul is saying, I want you to get rid of all of that stuff in your life and make yourself pure to God. Amen? The Bible uses this sense of marriage as a commitment symbol of speaking of how we are to commit ourselves to Christ. You are getting married to Christ. I heard a story about a young man who was living with his girlfriend. And the pastor found out. And so he went over to visit him. And he said, well, tell me about your relationship with this young lady. And he said, oh man, it's so great. We share pastimes. We share our finances and intimacy. And he's going on and on. And finally the pastor says, wow, that sounds great. That sounds just like my wife and I. Why don't you marry her? 
Oh no, 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 I couldn't do that. I would lose my freedom, right? What if I changed my mind? You see, the problem that people have today is we want privileges without the commitment. And my counsel to everyone is to be very careful of those who want privileges without making the commitment. But baptism is about commitment. But people don't like commitment in the spiritual realm either, right? I'll lose my freedom. But often when we think we're going to lose our freedom, we're actually putting ourselves in bondage. And often what we consider bondage is true freedom. I'd like you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 4. I want to show you this. It's going to be page 786 in that seminar Bible. And I think that this verse has a dual fulfillment. Because it's certainly talking about in the days of Isaiah of what the people were going to do. But I think it's saying something else to us too. Look at verse 1. Isaiah 4 verse 1. And in that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. In a sense, I think that this is talking about the people at the end of time who want to be called Christian who claim to be a Christian, but they haven't committed themselves to Jesus Christ. And I feel pretty comfortable in saying that because you'll remember what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy. In talking about the Christians in the last days, he said they have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Right, And that's exactly what this is talking about. That people want to be able to check the box and say, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm going to go to heaven, but I can still do everything that I want to do. And they just look exactly like the world. Notice what Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do the things which I say? That word Lord means Master. And Jesus says, why are you calling me master and then you don't do the things I tell you to? That doesn't make any sense at all, right? Now, there's something else that the Bible says that I want to show you. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. It's going to be page 1303 in that seminar Bible. And I'd like you to notice what it says in verses 8 through 10. Paul says to us, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And so here we see that there are two things that are very essential for our salvation. The first we saw is we have to believe in our heart, right? We have to, from the heart, accept Jesus Christ into our life and we have to give Him control of that. But then he says we have to confess with our mouth. And that has to be a public confession. It's not enough to be a secret Christian. It's not enough to be a Christian in your heart, but that needs to be a public confession. And I believe that water baptism needs to be a public declaration. I think it's very similar to marriage. Now, I want you to imagine this. Imagine that someone gave you a marriage proposal. And they said, I'd like to marry you, but I don't think we need to have anybody around. Let's just, you and I, go out in the woods and we'll just exchange vows and we'll be married. Right? What would you say? You'd probably say, that's not really a commitment, right? If you don't want anybody else to know, are you embarrassed of me? Right? And so, I mean, if, if somebody didn't want that to be public, I would be concerned about that, right? That's not a commitment. Baptism is about commitment. And it is a public commitment. Commitment involves letting people know. And there are good reasons for that. And one of them is accountability. Now, I believe that baptism is about committing yourself not only to Christ, but to the church. Notice what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Paul is talking about us being brought into the body of Christ. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 47 says, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. All those that were baptized were not only baptized into Christ, but they were baptized into His church. And you see, there's reasons for that. One of the main reasons is that the local church congregation helps each other to be accountable. There are some people, though, that just don't want to be accountable. I know of some people that are a part of the church, but they're always going from this church to this church to this church, and they're never involved in their church, right? They're not making a commitment to that church. They're just going from here to there, and they're avoiding that accountability, if you will. I heard a story about a pastor who had one of his church members who wasn't coming to church. And so the pastor went to visit him. And the man was sitting by his fireplace, and so the pastor came in and they started talking. And he said, so how's it going? Uh, Are you okay? Uh, Everything all right? You haven't been to church? And the man said, yeah, I I don't think that I need that. Uh, I'm just uh, worshiping here by myself with God every week. And the pastor said, oh, I see. And so then he reached into the fire with the tongs and he took one of those burning coals off the fire and he set it off the side by itself. And they continued to talk and he kept watching that coal and it would get dimmer and dimmer and pretty soon it was cold. And then he took that same coal and he put it back on top of the fire and guess what happened? Pretty soon it started getting red hot again, right? And finally, the man recognized what the pastor is doing. And he said, Pastor, I I see what you're doing. That when I come to church, that's there for us to keep burning. Right? We help each other. And I'll be there next week. And so we have to realize that we help each other. We encourage each other. And we build each other up. And we keep each other burning. Amen? We keep each other accountable. Iron sharpens iron, the Bible says. We rub on each other and we smooth each other out. Amen? If you look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, it says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. We need to help each other and we don't want to be anonymous. When we're anonymous, that's when we get in trouble. If you think about it, when are people the most unfaithful to their spouse? It's when they go off somewhere on a trip and they're by themselves and there's no one there that knows them. They're anonymous. There's no one there to be accountable to. And what happens? You start watching things on TV that you wouldn't normally watch. You start eating things you wouldn't normally eat. And then you go do things that you wouldn't normally do. And the next thing you know, they're in an adulterous relationship, right? Because there was no accountability. They were anonymous. And we need to be very careful that we are not doing that to ourselves. It is for our benefit that we help each other in this problem that we have called sin. Amen? Now, I want to show you something in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's going to be page 1320. If you're still in Romans, just go one book to the right. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Page 1320 in that seminar Bible. And notice what it says, starting in verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as He pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Here Paul is describing to us that we are all in the body of Christ. And that we all have specific purposes and things, but you can't say to the other members of the church, I have no need of you. 
right? Well, you could say that, but you'd be wrong, right? Because you would be outside of the will of God. Now, let me tell you something. The body is the organized church, right? And if you look at Scripture, it talks about elders being put in place. It talks about deacons. And what were they doing? They were leading and guiding the body, right? All of the believers that were part of the church. Now, let me tell you something else about the body. The body has to be joined together, right? If you cut off your arm, it's no longer a part of the body. It's just an arm out there by itself, right? It can't function without the body. And the body is hurting because the arm is not there, right? Imagine this. Imagine that you had a body of water and all of a sudden a strip of land just came up right in between it. What would you have? You'd have separation, wouldn't you? Now you have two bodies of water because you're not all one whole unit. You can't be a body by definition unless you are connected to the church. You need to be a part of the church. And God knew this, and that's why we're not only being baptized into Christ, but we're being baptized into His body, into His church. That is a connection that you and I need. A connection of like-minded believers. I'd like you to notice what C.S. Lewis once said. When I first became a Christian, I thought that I could do it on my own by retiring to my room and reading theology, and I wouldn't go to the churches. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth grade music, were nevertheless being sung with both devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic-sided boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. So, how should baptism be performed? There are some people that say you need to be immersed. There are some that say you need to have a triune immersion. You need to be baptized down once into the Father, once into the Son, once into the Holy Spirit. There are some people that say, no, you just need to be sprinkled with water. There are others that say, oh, you can be sprinkled with rose petals. And there are even some that say, well, I was baptized by mail. Right? But what does the Bible say? Notice Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul tells us there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Now, that doesn't mean that a person cannot be baptized a second or a third time. It's not talking about the quantity, but what it's talking about is the type. There is only one type of legitimate baptism. So why did John baptize Jesus in the Jordan River? Notice in John chapter 3, verse 23, that it says, Now John was baptizing in the Anon near Salem because there was much water there. What's the implication there? The implication is much water is needed, right? And that's why he was baptizing in that particular location. The very sense of being buried means that you have to go all the way down underneath the water and be totally submerged. That's how the symbology works. How many funerals have you ever been where they buried somebody by sprinkling a handful of water on them? Or dirt, I'm sorry. You ever been to a funeral where somebody was buried by one handful of dirt? No, it doesn't happen that way, does it? It doesn't fit the symbology then to just sprinkle someone with water. They have to be totally emerged. They have to go down into that watery grave and die to self, right? Your breath is suspended. You are dead symbolically. And then you come up out of that grave into the newness of life. So what is baptism? That's an English word that comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to dip, to immerse, or to plunge under water. There's a story about a minister once who was doing a baptism of sprinkling. And he started talking about the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. 
And in Acts chapter 8, verse 38, it says, So that he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized. And so as this pastor is performing this baptism by sprinkling, he's explaining, well, when the Bible says that they went down into the water, it doesn't mean that they really went down into the water. It means that they were just close to, roundabout, or nearby. And so when the service was done, there was a man that came up to him and said, Pastor, I'm so grateful for the message today. He said, you cleared up a lot of questions that I had. You see, I always wondered how Jonah could be in that fish for three days, but now I realize that he wasn't in the fish. He was just close to, roundabout, or nearby. And he just could see everything that was happening. And I always wondered about those three boys in that fiery furnace. But now I realize they weren't in the furnace. They were just close to, roundabout, or nearby. And you know that lion's den that Daniel went into? Now I realize he wasn't in the den. It was kind of like being at the zoo. He was just close to, roundabout, or nearby. And by the way, I'm a very wicked man. And I was worried about the hell fire and burning. But now I realize I won't be in that fire. I'm just going to be close to, roundabout, or nearby. And you know, I would say to you that I'm going to be here next week, but I think I'll just be close to, roundabout, or nearby. You see, friends, there are some people that just try to make the Bible say what they want it to say rather than going by the Word of God. Right? It clearly says that they went down into the water and he baptized them. Notice what Faith of Our Fathers by Cardinal James Givens says. And I want to answer a question then. Why are there so many ways that people are using for baptism, right? Notice what he says on page 277 of that book. For several centuries after the establishment of Christianity, baptism was usually conferred by immersion. So here we see that it went on several centuries after Christ and after the apostles. But since the 12th century, the practice of baptizing by infusion has prevailed in the Catholic Church. That infusion is just sprinkling. He goes on to say, as this manner is attended with less inconvenience than baptism by immersion. Friends, we have to be very careful when we're more concerned about convenience than we are about following the Word of God. Amen? This is a first century church in Philippi, and that is a full immersion baptistry. In the Middle Ages, the Christian city of refuge in Cappadocia, Turkey, has a baptism there. And here's a couple of men doing a mock baptism there. And you can see that that would be a full immersion. Next to the Leaning Tower of Pisa, there's another building that has inside of it a baptistry. And there are dozens of other cathedrals with large baptismal founts in Europe. It was not until the Council of Ravenna in 1311 A.D. that sprinkling and pouring were officially accepted as equally valid as immersion and the rite of baptism. And when I say officially accepted, I mean by the Catholic Church. Here's from that book, Faith of Our Fathers. It says, The church exercises her discretion in adopting the most convenient mode according to the circumstances of time and place. Friends, it is not about convenience. It's about obedience. Well, then that brings up the question, well, what about infant baptism? Is that biblical? Well, let me just say the same thing that I've said several times already tonight. And that is that baptism is about commitment. Amen? Water baptism is called the baptism of repentance. Remember what Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 38? He was speaking to the people. They were cut to the heart. They said, what must we do? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And so here we see that repentance is required before baptism. And can an infant do that? No. No, the reason that the Catholic Church began to do that is because during those dark ages, there were many infants that were dying. And they wanted to give people the comfort that God would save that child. And so they insisted that they had to be baptized, right? 
But friends, that's really putting God in a box, isn't it? That God can't figure out that that child was not of the age of accountability and they were not able to make that decision for themselves. God judges according to what we know, not what we don't know. And God is not going to keep a baby out of heaven because they were not able to make that decision for themselves. As if in baptism there was some kind of holy transference that takes place, right? It is a symbol of something real that happens in baptism of the Holy Spirit and that commitment. Now, what I do believe is biblical, though, is a dedication of a child. If you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see that Samuel's mother brought him to the temple to be dedicated. You see that Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to the temple to be dedicated, right? It's a very godly thing to bring your child to the church and ask for them to be dedicated because you want the blessing of God on that child, but it's really the parents who are making the commitment that they are going to raise that child in the admonition of the Lord. Amen? That's where the commitment is made by the parents. Well, should a person ever be rebaptized? I'd like to show you a passage in Acts chapter 19. That's going to be page 1278 of your seminar Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Fifth book of the New Testament. And notice what it says starting in verse 1. We're going to go 1 through 5. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And so they said, Into John's baptism. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we see a perfect example in the Bible of a rebaptism. Here are some people that were baptized into John's baptism, a baptism of repentance. They were baptized in the water, right? But they hadn't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so here we see a, a clear reason why someone would want to be baptized. You've been coming through these meetings and you have been learning a lot. Right? And now, all of a sudden, you realize what you are committing to. And so, that might be a very good reason why you would want to be baptized. Because now, you're much more knowledgeable of what you're actually committing to. And so, there are very good biblical reasons for being baptized. A person that was baptized, but then fell away. Someone who got back into the world, got back into living in the flesh, and now they want to come back. They would want to make that commitment anew, wouldn't they? They would want to be rebaptized because they've fallen away and now they're coming back. And so there are very legitimate reasons for doing that. And there are biblical precedents for that. Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 9 says, And it shall be that every living thing that moves, everywhere the river goes, will live. Because these waters go there, everything will live wherever the river goes. It's talking about a real literal river in the kingdom of God, but it's also talking about the waters of baptism. That that brings that new life into a person. Amen? Tom Appling was standing on the 87th floor of the Twin Towers in New York City when that first plane hit. And the building shook. And Tom and his friends were all trying to figure out what happened. And Tom said to his buddy, let's go down to the 71st floor and see what's going on. And so down they went. And as they were there, there were people everywhere. And everybody was trying to figure out what was going on. But there was that still small voice in Tom's head saying, you need to keep going down. And so Tom said to his friend, let's go down to the first floor. And his friend said, no, I'm staying here. Uh, I think everything's going to be okay. Well, Tom Appling went down to the first floor. There were people there that were all over the place trying to figure out what was going on. 
But that still small voice kept saying, you've got to keep going. You've got to get out of the building. And Tom walked outside and looked up when the second plane hit the second tower. He immediately ran across the street to get away. But because Tom was listening to the voice of God, he lived. His friend and many others died that day. But friends, what about you? Are you listening to that still, small voice in your head that's saying to you, you have got to get out of Babylon. You've got to get up out of that corrupt church. And you've got to be a part of a church that keeps the commandments of God and has the faith of Jesus. And perhaps you're uh, thinking about this lesson tonight. Should I be rebaptized? Do I want to make a commitment to the Lord? And tonight we have for you on your tables some decision cards. I'd like you to take a look at those cards. The first thing that it has is for you to put your name on the top of that card. I hope that you would do that. The first question says, I understand that Bible baptism is only by immersion and is the symbol of death to sin and being raised to new life with Jesus. If you've seen that tonight and you believe that, please circle number one. Number two says, I desire to be baptized like Jesus was. If that's your desire, please circle number two. Number three says, I desire to be rebaptized. If you have that conviction that you need to make a new commitment to Christ, then please circle number three. Number four says, I've been baptized into the body of Christ, but I desire to become a part of a Sabbath-keeping body of believers. If that's you, please circle number four. And number five says, I have a question that I would like to discuss with the speaker. If that's you, please circle that. And then I want to do the same thing I did last time. We had a decision card. If you have a prayer need, please write that on the back of the card and I will make sure that we are praying for you. I'm going to give you just a few moments to fill that out and then we will have our closing prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for everyone here. I thank you for every heart. Lord, you know everyone here. You know our needs. Lord, our prayer is that you would show us what you would have us do as individuals. What would you have us do, Lord, to be a part of the body of Christ, to be the remnant church of revelation? Lord, impress upon every heart what you would have us do. Lord, we're thankful for the work that You have begun in each one of us, but we pray that You would bring it to completion. That You would bring it to that place, Lord, where we would be just like Jesus. And Lord Jesus, what would You have us do? We ask You to show us in Jesus' name. Amen.